0: My guest today, Stuart Patrick, is author of the new book, The Sovereignty Wars, Reconciling America with the World. The book examines how debates about sovereignty in the United States shape American foreign policy and also the liberal international order that is the patchwork of treaties and agreements and institutions like the United Nations that helps set the rules of international relations. And we kick off this conversation examining how the Trump administration's approach to sovereignty is something unique in American history, and of course we discuss the implications of that. Stuart is a senior fellow and director of the Program on International Institutions and Global Governance at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was a guest on this show last year for episode 116, in which he discusses his life and career. If you've not already done so, check out that episode. And while you are there perusing our Global Dispatches podcast archives, I do want to remind you that much of the content up there is pretty evergreen, and that is by design. The episodes with numbers next to them are profiles of individuals who have led interesting careers in international affairs. And I highly recommend you go through the archives and check out some of those episodes. They'll be as relevant now as they were when they were first published. So go find someone you know, maybe someone you don't, and learn their life story. And and I promise we'll have interesting digressions about historic foreign policy events along the way. For now, though, here is my conversation with Stuart Patrick about sovereignty in international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. It's a pretty high-minded conversation. I think you'll appreciate it. Here's Stuart. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanyan from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season 4 launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: Yeah, I started writing this book uh, about uh, three years ago, and I had been fascinated for a long time about the subject of sovereignty, um, dating back even to my undergraduate years. And then later, uh, when I was working on looking at why the United States had such ambivalence towards multilateral cooperation, uh, but then when um, the – Trump campaign started to kick off uh, it added a i think a special note of uh, poignancy or at least made it more compelling because in many degrees he really uh, represents the ap- apotheosis of of that whole of the whole notion of of sovereignty as being the centerpiece for American foreign policy in ways that I think in the past you've had undercurrents of it, but you haven't seen anything like this certainly since the United States embraced global leadership in nineteen
0: forty five yeah like you've always had. Um, voices in, in the American foreign policy debate that were, you know, strong sort of sovereigntists, you might say, but none of them ever became president.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's it's striking that just to, to take the issue of trade. Um, but, you know, back in 1992, Pat Buchanan was uh, the a candidate for um, a president, and he only got probably about 20 percent of the elect of, of the primary electorate in the um, in, in the on the Republican side. And, you know, arguably his intellectual air, at least um, in a lot of the dialogue that he uses, including, you know, echoing um, the sort of America first language, which which, of course, was echoing you know, Charles Lindbergh uh, in the uh, in the interwar period. Uh, his uh, his Buchanan's intellectual air is in the is in the White House. And um, so it's really re- it's really remarkable. These things have always percolated um, through American history. There's an I actually go back to um, the the founding and debates about how popular sovereignty which had become this incredible concept in the united states first country based on the consent of the governed the debates about the founders about how we're actually going to put that into practice even debates as to whether or not you know it was one sovereign united states or it was 13 different sovereign united states of america and uh obviously uh you know, we had a civil war to sort of begin to determine that. Uh but it's um it's amazing how how enduring some of these sentiments have been and yet they've largely been in the background since nineteen forty five
0: so so let's just like define our terms a little bit for people who are coming in like uh with a low amount of knowledge of of this kind of particular debate in in US politics and US foreign policy what what is sovereignty and how has that sort of notion manifested itself in political debates over the years and foreign policy debates over the years
1: right exactly well sovereignty is basically a principle that um defines the fundamental unit of uh world politics or international relations as a, a sovereign state and and to be sovereign there are several different components of it. One of them is that you have supreme authority over a particular territory and its population, including control over cross-border flows. Uh, it' and so authority is a really big part of it and and that's recognized by other countries. but there are other um, aspects of sovereignty that are also w- we usually bear in mind and and that are part of the American political discourse. One of them is um is freedom of action and uh, that is or autonomy. and that's the notion that Nobody else can interfere with what we're doing. It's not simply that we are sort of legally independent and we don't bow down to any uh, entity above us. It's that in practical terms, we're not even the United States is not like Gulliver basically in a sense being tied down. And then a third component that I talk about is 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 influence those
0: european lilliputians always right. trying to explain exactly. our no it's our, always the, uh, ray of actions yeah ex-
1: exactly you see that you see it constantly and you saw you saw it actually even during the campaign um you had a number of uh, trump's surrogates uh, making those sorts of statements certainly steve bannon and others um and but then the third component because i talk about a sovereignty triangle basically most people think about it in terms of authority and, and constitutional independence but then we also talk about it in terms of of autonomy or freedom of action. You know how much how much room room to roam do we have and then but the third which people uh, talk about a lot is really the ability to influence our own destiny and and that's influence it's basically can you actually realize at a practical level your your preferences as a country in the world, whether it's trade preferences or whether it's dealing with with a major issue like climate change or ter- or a big issue like terrorism? And the argument that I make basically is is that, um, is that if you think about it in terms of these this sovereignty triangle, the biggest debates uh, tend to be over alleged um, losses of US constitutional authority to international law or you know the fear is that somehow you know fear of John Bolton and 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 a lot of other people in that sovereignist camp is that we're we're slowly going to lose this political this this self-determination this popular sovereignty what i say is that yeah. those those are huge debates but they're wildly overblown the much more Typical trade-off is what I argue, uh, and I get very practical in in terms of some of the examples. is is between autonomy, freedom of action, and actually influencing your fate as a country. And, and basically, in a in a global world, the the only way that you can actually uh, influence your fate is to actually forego independent action in most cases and and embrace collective action. And that's, that's <laughs> yeah. Go ahead.
0: Well, well, I, I, I mean, I, I agree broadly with your point, but those like debates that you say get wildly overblown about sort of sovereignty as a bulwark against like the UN telling you, you know, how to homeschool your child right, is, exactly. is debates that I've very much seen up close and personal covering the UN. Over the years, and and covering, um, you know, reaction, uh, in certain corners of the American, you know, political space to debates over, say, um, ratifying the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So you That's have this kind possible. of core group, uh, in the United States that actually only seems to be getting stronger. Yeah. Um, that are just virulently against any sort of treaty ratification because of the implied in their mind authority that it would give the international community um, over their sort of own lives. Yes.
1: Yeah, it, absolutely, and it's, it's really remarkable. I try to begin each of the chapters with uh, with vignettes um, that try to sort of draw the reader in, and and a, what, a couple of my favorite are in uh, you know in this chapter on international law, which is called you know Do as I say, not as I do, which looks at this really weird position the United States has been in historically. We're both the leading champion of the spread of international law, and yet we we exempt ourselves uh, from so many of these things. And one one of the vignettes is uh, is is of um, You know, um, uh, Rick Santorum and Senator Orrin Hatch and others basically fulminating on the floor of the Senate saying that if we ratify the convention, UN convention on the rights of persons with disabilities, it will give the United Nations a a virtual license to interfere in in virtually every aspect of American life. And, you know, it's so it's so uh, it's such a crazy notion when you look at it, because. That legislation was, or the bill, the the, the convention was modeled on the Americans with Disabilities Act, and yet you mm-hmm. get people, you know, saying that this won't allow you to homeschool your kids. It'll allow people to, you know, minors to get um, get abortions without parental consent. There's a whole, there's a real fear that somehow uh, a treaty that was crafted, in a sense, by Americans to protect American liberties and in, in a sense universalize American approaches to things is somehow a threat to American sovereignty. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, and I should say oftentimes it really does come down to domestic abortion politics, even though when they have you know, nothing to do with any of these, any of these things.
1: Yeah, I think so. Well, you know, the human rights thing is really interesting. You know, the U.S. has always had a trouble, had trouble, even at the height of our power right after 1945. I've always had trouble with the sort of human rights element of things. And uh, and. Um, You know, obviously, the United States took pains to make sure that um, the United Nations was set up in a way that protected American sovereignty and also freedom of action with, you know, the Security Council veto for the permanent members, etc. But uh, almost immediately. Treaties that you wouldn't think would be problematic, like the Genocide Convention or other treaties, came afoul partly of uh, of actually racist politics, uh, mostly in the American South, but not limited to the American South. And you got something, some famous amendment called the Bricker Amendment, which almost passed, that would have made it virtually impossible for the United States to join any interna- UN international treaty. And it only only failed by one vote at the last minute with the extraordinary intervention by Dwight Eisenhower. But the legacy of or the ghost of the Bricker Amendment, as they call it, has continued to live on. And sometimes it's couched in states rights issues. Sometimes it's couched in, you know, this will interfere with our domestic politics. But the United States is is a crazy outlier. And a lot of it's for reasons of political culture. Compared to the vast majority of other countries so that, you know, when it comes to the convention on the rights of the child, for instance, it's us and um, uh, the Somalis that are not members of that convention.
0: So, you know, it's in this political environment and those voices have always been present, but have never been, you know, dominant, as I said earlier, you know, never, never sort of found uh, an ally uh, in, in the president. Um too strong. Although Reagan, on some of these issues, was was sometimes allied with some of these ideas. Um, but but in any case, no one as sort, of, sort of fully encapsulates like kind of these notions of sovereignty as you define them as as Donald Trump. So I mean, how has in like the first ten months of his presidency that sort of manifested itself uh, to you?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there there have been these sovereigntists, and they they've been sort of getting stronger, I think. Um, but Donald Trump is. In, in effect, the, the most prominent sovereigntist in, in the world today, arguably, and certainly the most prominent in the United States, you know, it was at the it was at the basis of his um, of his campaign whether or not it was building the border wall when he talked about uh, the importance of, uh, of, of of that a nation without borders is not a nation and that you. Know, when he went down and met with Enrique Peña Nieto uh, right after securing the Republican nomination, he said the two had discussed the sovereign right of every nation to, to control its borders. It's been behind his trade strategy, which hasn't simply been about um, you know the fact that they're bad deals. It's also that, um, that there's the, the notion that the World Trade Organization uh, has we, there's a binding dispute resolution mechanism, and he hates that idea because he believes that uh, you know we should just be able to re- retaliate on our own. So there's a growing sense that he doesn't um, support the actual framework of. Laws and a lot of people uh, at the World Trade Organization are worried that the United States is going to go rogue on trade. In fact, and, and in fact, the when the when the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, came out in uh, with its sort of trade policy agenda for the uh, Trump administration, one of the three main pillars was promoting American sovereignty. You also saw it on the climate change um, pullout from the Paris agreement uh, in uh, early June. And and that was really remarkable because, of course, that's a that's a, a purely voluntary, largely aspirational uh, document where it was it was purposely tailored not to be a treaty because the Obama administration knew that they could not get that through the Senate, where the only treaty apparently you can get through is something on straddling fish stocks or, or these yeah. other types of treaties. But 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 and yet in his rose garden denunciation of the treaty um, the president spent president of Trump that is spent, spent about three paragraphs talking about why this was important on sovereignty grounds and that as we know he said these even these voluntary agreements ultimately take on a life of their own and become binding on the United States and constrain us and and our infringements on our sovereignty so to protect that sovereignty we have we have to leave and. I, that there
0: is some some truth to that. I mean, just in terms of like how normative values evolve over time.
1: That's true. It is true that that and it, and that's a big ob- objection also with customary international law, which is sort of you know things that countries do, and after a while, if they do it for long enough, for instance, then it's it's considered to be part of the corpus, the body of international law. Mm-hmm. The problem with the problem with the, his formulation was that it's so extreme that if you if you took it to its logical extreme, or or, or it's it's, it's um, you know that. The, the. The logical extreme of his position is that you could never get involved in any international agreement because it because it could become increasingly binding over time. Um, and so, you know, it would actually make cooperation in some ways, um, some ways mm-hmm. impossible. Um, and uh, so, yes, there you know, one has to watch these things, but um, but going the informal route is precisely uh, to give you the sort of flexibility and autonomy uh, that you want, and also it doesn't even touch that sort of constitutional authority that you have, um, and which uh, which the sovereigns are always warning you about. So it was an odd example. The other, the, the, the probably the p- uh, most prominent time that the president has really played the sovereignty card, and he played it 21 times, sort of a 21-gun salute, uh, was when he went to the United Nations. And he gave his first speech uh, before the U.N. General Assembly in September. And there um, he called sovereignty one of three pillars of international order uh, alongside sort of uh, prosperity and security. And it was a really curious speech because the first half of it, um, he got a lot of applause, uh, I think, from the member states there – because, of course, sovereignty is something that matters to a huge number of member states, particularly those uh, in the those sort of developing uh, countries mm-hmm. that still sort of refer to themselves as the non-aligned nations. That's, you know, it's always been a big deal where they don't want to yeah. get they don't want to get intervened on. They don't want to get uh, they don't want to get pushed around. And, and, you know, he famously said, we're going to pursue our interests just like each of you pursue your interests. And so he presented a notion of sovereignty that was sort of very traditional and yeah. comforting to a lot of those the, guys the
0: chinese notion of something right exactly it's known exactly. around the un but, which is don't interfere with stuff that happens within our borders and we won't mess with
1: you exactly and you know it's been a really while to see his foreign policy which has been so um, so bereft of of any concern with human rights and democracy promotion, which has obviously been uh, such a part of inconsistent and yet such a part of American foreign policy, certainly Mm -hmm. since 1945. But then what was very interesting was that the speech pivoted from that almost absolutist version of sovereignty, where how you treat your people doesn't really matter, et cetera, et cetera, or what goes on behind your borders, to then Mm -hmm. an indictment of a number of different regimes from Iran to Venezuela uh, for mistreating their people and not not just being rogue states, but also mistreating their people and suggesting that at some time uh, those regimes might have to go. And so you had this you you had this weird combination of speeches, um, uh, the first half of it being sort of very traditionalist and the second half, very neoconservative.
0: Well, I mean, and and that kind of brings us to, I think, what is a um, inconsistent approach to the United Nations itself. Um, on the one hand, you know, you you have Trump sort of pulling out of agreements like the Paris Agreement and putting, you know, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal on, uh, on life support. But yet, you know, there has not been this whole scale withdrawing from liberal internationalism that I, for one, sort of expected to happen. Um, and at the United Nations itself, you know, a lot of the work that the U.S. mission to the U.N. does – their day to day is is sort of unchanged as it has been from from previous years. I mean, there are certain um, departures, certain aberrations, but for the most part, you know, the regular order of business is is still is is still sort of what happens at, at the UN every day.
1: Yes, it's it is curious, and I think it's it's sort of um, you know a collision between the sort of sovereigntist worldview and the sort of practical realities of mm-hmm. governing or at least attempting to provide a, a modicum of governance in the international system. Um, and, it, and, you know, even the a, a UN skeptics like um, George W. Bush, you know, who famously in 2002 in the run up to the Iraq war said, look, it's time for the UN to prove its relevance by enforcing Security Council resolutions on Iraq. And if it doesn't, well, we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. Even he, by the end of the first term, much less the second term where he he just returned over and over again for the united nations um uh, yeah. you know to help s- stabilize iraq to hold you know put peace operations in in lebanon etc with respect to um uh, uh donald trump it's it, it's absolutely the case um you know he i think part of the more uh, mellow approach to the un than you might have expected uh, that with from the real confrontational rhetoric early on may have to do with um, the influence of Nikki Haley, um, the US mm-hmm. envoy to the UN. It, one can over- I, I
0: agree with that. Yeah.
1: yeah. I just think that she's, you know, one can overplay her uh, influence, but she, because initially when they came in and, you know, just even more draconian notion of, of slashing budgets, a notion that, you know, our draft executive order saying that not only will we, be skeptical of any international treaty that comes our way. It's actually time to look at all the international treaties, multilateral treaties that exist and think about um, getting out of them and whether or not they should continue. Um, since then, uh, I think Nikki Haley has been very savvy in aligning uh, Donald Trump with the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez's reform agenda. and. This is a place where I actually have I actually have some hope because God knows the UN has all sorts of dysfunctionalities to it. It, it does indispensable work, but it also has, you know, pockets of corruption and cronyism and 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 it lacks uh, transparency and accountability. And, uh, you know, I think that she was smart enough to say, look, um, this guy, Antonio Gutierrez, is actually we share a, a, the vast majority of his goals. And so let's try to work within the system to make it better. Um, and, I think so far she's managed to persuade the president of that.
0: So where do you see um, sort of Trump's interpretation of sovereignty going forward? And and I should say, you know, this is one of those things where, because I think the U S president lacks any real core convictions that are identifiable on foreign policy issues um, that sort of the application of notions of sovereignty could possibly like vary from case to case and, there could not really be any single overarching you know str uh you know like thread or strategy that could be kind of identified
1: yeah i would say that um the 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 president himself the degree to which he is really aware or placing sovereignty issues uh, front and center, and has a, a sort of a sophisticated understanding or nuanced uh, understanding of sovereignty. You know, I I I don't think that's probably the case. I think he viscerally understands concepts like putting America first. I think that my my suspicion is that some of the speechwriters around him, and obviously um, Steve Bannon beforehand, who made sovereignty such a centerpiece of of um, of a the, the Trump campaign about Stephen Miller his uh, his acolyte who remains there and has continued to put it in many of many of his speeches. I think they probably have sort of a broader uh, or a more focused agenda here. My guess is going forward is that um, is that you will see a continued nationalist uh, thread to much of this, and um, you will see a continued skepticism certainly for international treaties i wouldn't be surprised, for instance, if he were the first president. Uh, and his his secretary of state and secretary of defense were the first people to actually um, declare themselves against the U.N. convention on the law of the sea, for instance, that would not surprise me um, because uh, it's, it's actually it. it it, the stumbling block there has been basically um, the, the – a few conservatives in the Senate. Um, I think that um,
0: – well, But we, we should just unpack that by saying that every other US president and every other secretary of defense, no matter what the party, since the Reagan era has has supported, has supported it. it did, US and it has, um, ratification of the UN, it, UN Convention UN Conventional of the Law of the Sea. To sea. Exactly. It just hasn't been ratified because – of a couple of those fringe elements in 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 the it's, Senate in that the we Senate, yeah, about earlier and yeah.
1: It, yeah, and it's and you know and they 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 can mobilize quite effectively and you know yeah. it's a little bit it's they're, a little, they're
0: louder, yeah. It's uh, well, then, it's, it's a little then, bit like
1: it's a little like the yeah. devil in Paradise Lost. You know, he always gets the best lines, uh, even though in theory he that he's on the wrong side. <laughs> but mm-hmm.
0: uh, and and we just to be clear for for listeners who are unaware, it requires a two thirds majority of the Senate indeed. to. Uh, Right. To, to ratify a treaty and so you're gonna you know you need to convince some of those um, you know far-right skeptics that exactly. it's worth their while and that's been that's a been difficult very- yeah difficult uh, task with the last several years
1: yeah my, my guess is that um, the relationship with the UN will be um, will be workmanlike. That um, there'll be cooperation on issues that the president uh, continues to care about quite a lot, including on terrorism, for instance. But there'll be much less interest on in things like you know the the development agenda, the this d- development agenda 2030, which is basically these sustainable development goals that the world has signed up to, in, which include er, eliminating extreme poverty, et cetera. Um, I think that um, it. We will be coming back again and again to uh, the U.N. Security Council um, uh, provided, uh, you know, it it shows some um, forward movement with respect to um, North Korea. Um, But uh, my 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 guess is that there will be a, a, you know, a pretty consistent preference for uh, bilateralism uh, over multilateralism. Uh, That seems to be the president's uh, preference. I don't know if it will outlast this presidency, but when it comes to trade negotiations, for instance, there's a there is a, there's a sense um, that he gives that it's much better to use U.S. negotiating weight on a one on one basis. What what he doesn't seem to see in is or it doesn't give off the appearance of understanding the importance of the sort of rule based foundations for things and in um, and, and, and any commitment to. Um, the international order as something